All right, let's get started here. <clears throat> and I'm just going to start with a quick story. I just, and this actually has nothing to do with Sunday school, but I just heard a testimony from Kenny, which I thought was fantastic. His dad had been praying for someone for over 30 years and had actually led this man's son to the Lord and then began to pray for this son's father, who is a very hardened individual and, you know, kind of like in the category of least likely to be saved if there is one of those. And, um, and so after 36 years, is it 36 years? Thirty-five years, he's just kept in touch with this guy off and on, but been praying for him. And the son called up Kenny's dad just recently, this week, four days ago, and said, "You should be. You should. I'll, I'll keep it short." So four days ago, and just said, "Hey, would you come and talk to my dad, the guy he's been praying for for thirty-something years?" Well, he came down with a brain tumor, and suddenly, with a brain tumor and circumstances as they are, he has six weeks to live. And he's open. And this hardened man wept as he received the Lord in a, in a very genuine way. And I mean, just this, such a clear indication of sometimes God's loving kindness leads us to very, very hard circumstances. But the Lord uses them to draw us either closer to him or to bring us to faith, period. And, um, and so, praise God. I'm hearing stories like this. I, I want to say all the time, because last week I heard another one, but that, I guess I, I can't say all the time, <laughs> but, um, but it happens. This kind of stuff is really, really exciting. So, all right, so we are um, doing Sunday School on Ethics, and I'm going to open up in prayer, and I'm counting on the fact that as I pray, you are praying with me, because I need just, you need just as much help listening as I need to teach this stuff. And so, so let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this morning. And, and Lord, we thank you that you have shown us how we should live. Lord, you are a God of truth. And, and there is a path for us. And Lord, there's a lot of confusion out there. And so as we look at the teleological argument this morning, I pray that you would just bring some clarity for us and use this powerfully in our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So ethics. Ethics is the discipline dealing with what is good and bad and with moral duty and obligation. So how should we live? All Christians and most atheists agree that how we live really matters. And there are defined ways in which we should live. But how do we come up with that definition? How do we decide how to live? Um, there's, there's different schools of thought there. So I'm, I'm going to talk about three, well, there's three main ways, and we'll talk about one of them today. But um, there's the existential approach to ethics, and, and that is we decide how to live individually without outside influence. And so we, we need to... What we do, any action, is considered good so long as it is decided upon by the individual and not by their surroundings. And, and so that's, that's the existential. Uh, teleological, subjective to the situation and circumstances. A good action is one that has good results. And so we consider the results, and that's what drives the action. 
Um, and then there's the deontological, and that's what we'll look at next week. And the deontological deals more with duties, laws, fixed principles, standards that we are all obligated to obey and follow. And so, regardless of the results, there are fixed laws that we must obey. So last week, we looked at the existential principle, and John Paul, or Jean-Paul Sartre, was really the guy who popularized that. And, and what he really taught and pushed was that you can be whoever you want to be, and you can do whatever you want to do, so long as it's authentic. And so he considered bad faith to be that, that condition where we make decisions based on outside influences. So if you, if you live by a religious set of instructions, then he would consider that bad faith because you're not looking into yourself for how you should live. You're relying on other people, and so that's bad faith. Um, religion, parents, schools, you need to decide for yourself. And the greatest evil occurs when you allow yourself to be influenced by religious views. Um, or how you've been raised, or so on and so forth. The, the emphasis is the free expression of self. And so there are some obvious negatives here, and I'll just mention a couple before we move on to the teleological. So, negative. You become God of your own life, right? Because you decide for yourself. Nobody decides out there. And so, in a sense, you put yourself in the place of God. And, and it also has a negative influence with regard to the church and Christianity because there are a lot of people in our culture who come to the faith, but they come with the idea of, oh yeah, I'm going to choose this. God is kind of my genie, and I'm going to come to him, and he's going to do whatever I, whatever I want him to do. And so he's not so much the authority. You are, and you're going to try this out because you think it'll go well with you. And... Um, so, so that's a danger. But also for people who become Christians or, or pursue the faith, it can be kind of this attitude of me, myself, and I. I just need the Bible, Jesus, and I can be at home by myself. In other words, the rules I need, just me and my Bible, and I don't really need to be part of a church, and I don't really need to have spiritual authority in my life. And, um, and so... so it's, it's really an emphasis on autonomy. So, I mean, that's a negative. But there are positives, too, because the existential approach takes the focus of our actions off external duty and puts them on desires of the heart. And so um, Psalm 119 says, I run in the path of your commands, for you have set my heart free. And so we, we, we should be motivated internally to obey God. It shouldn't just be I'm, I'm doing it out of duty, right? I mean, you, you understand. So, so Piper wrote a poem that I thought was really good. It was in his Desiring God book, and I think it kind of summed up the whole book. And in the poem, he said he brought flowers to his wife. And she, she says, oh, for me? And he says, yes. And she says, but why? And I'm, I'm, it, his rhymed, I think. And, um, and so she was really excited about the flowers. And she said, but why? And he said, well, because it's my duty. 
because it's the right thing to do. Um, you know, I mean, everybody knows that husbands should bring flowers to their wives, and, and it's the right thing. So you must do the right thing. And so I'm doing it because it's the right thing. Now, you can imagine the wife's response. <laughs> Great, yeah. Thank you. I'm so blessed that you have this duty. Um, versus coming and giving the flowers to his wife, and she says, but why? Because I love you. I'm passionate about you. And, and I can't, I was driving home, and it was like I, I, I couldn't stop thinking about you, and I just wanted to bless you in some small way. You know, it's totally different. And so there's an element in our faith in walking with the Lord that it should be motivated. It shouldn't just be duty. It should be delight. And, um, and so, so that's important. So, but today we're moving on to the teleological principle. And John Frame puts it this way. A selection of goals and means to achieve those goals. And I have way too much here. I will never be able to get it done. And so I'm going to try to go quick and I hope to have time to interact as well. So in teleological thinking, an action is right or wrong based on the results, right? And so you look at the consequences. If the outcome or consequences are good, then the action is good. If the outcome or consequences are bad, then the action is bad. So it's, it's ultimately based on the results. And so here's a, here's a quick example. In World War II, um, Diedrich Bonhoeffer sought, he, he, had, he was part of a plot to assassinate Hitler. Now, is it right to murder? No. It's wrong to murder, right? The Bible says, thou shalt not kill. So, so it was wrong for Bonhoeffer to try to kill Hitler, right? Yes. Really? <laughs> What's that? Romans 13, obey, obey the government. But there's, there's different lines of thinking here, right? Because Bonhoeffer said, yes, murder is wrong. But in this case, this guy is a mass murderer. If we murder him, then we stop this madness. And so we need to murder him. And so do you see how he, his thinking was consequentialist or theological? He was thinking... The ends justify the means, right? Now, for, we're all different, and some people think more that way than others. That tends to be, I'm, I'm very practical, and I tend to be a little bit more on that side. But others would say, no, there is a rule and a law, and we must follow that. And that's next week. Um, and so, so and, and it gets tricky, by the way. It's not simple, because what if, what if someone used that same line of thinking and said, I want to kill, this abortionist doctor is going to kill 2,000 babies this year, or you know, whatever the number is. So if we just kill them, then the babies will be saved. Do you see, it becomes a real slippery slope. Where do you draw the line? And, um, but teleological thinking at its core is, the ends justify the means. If it will result in a good consequence, then, then it's good. Um, 
The morality of an action depends on the end results or consequences. So we, Anne and I taught English in Japan, and we worked with a group of missionaries, and these missionaries were very teleological in their thinking. And so this is what they would do. They had missions that went into Burma. They were in Myanmar when nobody else was allowed. They were in China. They were in India. And they routinely bribed officials. They did whatever it took so that they could be in a place and share the gospel. And so is bribery right? Is it moral to bribe people to get what you want? No. But in their minds, the ends justified the means. And so they were willing to do that. And they were willing to bribe. They were willing to do all kinds of things in order to share the gospel. And so, so they were very consequential in their thinking. Um, Anne and I just finished a book. Actually, we finished it as a family. And it was um, called The God Smuggler, about Brother Andrew. And Brother Andrew felt more like, no, there's a principle about lying. And, um, and so there were times where he was determined. He would go to a checkpoint. He, he um, smuggled Bibles into the Iron Curtain, into, into former Soviet Union, et cetera, and places like that. And he took great risk to do that. But there were times where he wouldn't even really hide the Bibles. And he would just say, Lord, I'm not going to lie. You know, would you protect us? And any, any comments about that, Ann? He had too many to hide. He had too many to hide. So he'd start hiding them, but then you'd have more Bibles, and pretty soon you can't hide them, and these guys search. And so he would pray every time he came to a checkpoint, Lord, would you blind them? Would you confuse them? And the Lord worked in really powerful ways. And so he had a very different approach than the missionaries we worked with in, in Japan. And... Um, that was a side note. So theological thinkers dissatisfied with the subjectivism of the existential approach, which is very subjective. What do, what do I think? What do I want? And are not content to rely on subjective sense of approval or disapproval for ethical guidance. Okay, are you with me? So they, they don't, theological thinkers say, well, it's, we need something less subjective for ethical guidance. And yet, they, they, they want something more objective than mere feelings. However, at the same time, are not ready to rely on universal rules and laws that govern everyone, which would be the ontological. Um, so a tele teleological person would say it's crazy to not to, to tell a father whose family is starving that you can't steal a loaf of bread to feed your family. They're starving. Go steal. Save your family. And um, whereas in other lines of ethical thought, that wouldn't be okay, even if your family was starving. So the um, teleological folks focus on the consequences of our actions. And, and does it does it lead to pleasure? Does it lead to joy? Or, or does it lead to loving others? Um, so just a brief history. And I'm still trying to pronounce this, but Aristippus. Does that sound right? Aristippus. Something. From 435 BC, founded the Cyrenaic school. 
And for them, pleasure was the chief end. So everything that they did, it was all about pleasure. And it wasn't just, it, pleasure was considered the highest good, the greatest amount of pleasure and the least amount of pain. That was the goal. And, that, and from that group came the word, the Greek word hedonism for pleasure. These guys were hedonists. They sought pleasure and that was their end. Number one purpose. And the best pleasures for these guys were the most intense pleasures. So food, sex, and drugs, things like that. So they indulged in luxury, food, sex. Wine was not considered a selfish activity, but was part of what made the best life. And um, moderation, justice, and wisdom to the Cyrenaics was considered societal constructs meant to distract us from attaining what was truly good. So, so these guys focused on short-term pleasures. So they, they, they really didn't have a place for, um, for delayed gratification. It was, hey, the best life is pleasure right now. And so they, they had a reputation for, for being licentious, as you can probably imagine. And so, so problems. Do you see any problems with pursuing short-term pleasure and making that your aim? Any thoughts? <laughs> any, any problems at all? And what might they be? What's that? Well, yeah. you're not very patient. I mean, I know for a fact that I'm not very patient. I became very spoiled. Okay. There's something really powerful about long-term gratification. Okay, patience. Any, anything else? Any thoughts about pursuing short-term pleasure? Yeah, Brett. Uh, drug driving, perfectly okay if you're pursuing your own pleasure. But then what gets complicated, I'm sure you're going to get to this, is how do we know what the long-term goals are going to be? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, and so, I mean, I was just thinking of one example for me. So in the, in the several summers ago, I was in college, and I worked selling books door to door. And I worked my tail end off. I knocked on doors. I ran between doors. I about killed myself. So from a short-term pleasure standpoint, it was miserable. I had calluses on my knuckles. And... Um, and it was, I, I went to just about every house in Roanoke, Virginia. And, and they shipped us across the country because they knew if you were anywhere close to your mom, you would go right back home. <laughs> and and so, so I was set up to go in Roanoke, Virginia. But there were other people around me. I can think of one story in, in particular of a guy who just thought, man, this is miserable. And so he took time off work and went to a baseball game. And he thought, man... In the short run, going to a baseball game will be fantastic. And so he did that. And then, you know, other things like that would creep in. And by the end of the summer, this guy didn't make any money. But I went back to school, and I was able to pay for my senior year of college and buy a motorcycle. And so, so in the short run, I was miserable. But in the long run... It was so worth it. And so when, when you pit short-term pleasures against long-term pleasures, it's complicated, right? Um, and so then along comes Epicurus. 
And he was in about 100 years later. And he, he said, yes, we should avoid pain and seek pleasure, which he divine, defined as the absence of pain. But, but he preferred long-term pleasure to short-term pleasure because he saw things like that. Hey, if you go after the short-term pleasure, you're going to have a lot of consequences that aren't going to be good. And after all, we're consequentialists, right? And so let's, instead of short-term, let's go after the long-term pleasures. And um, again, a way to try to understand and, and to come with the best possible moral reasoning. And so for him, he preferred mental to physical pleasures. Um, and pleasures of rest to pleasures of movement. And so you can see how complicated this is because not only which kind of pleasure are you talking about, or, or long-term or short-term, but also pleasures. How do you define pleasure? It could be mental, it could be physical, it could be... And so he chose to go uh, a slightly different route. Um, again, main thing is he pre preferred long-term pleasure over short-term. Well, then Aristotle came, and it was, it was about that same time, and um, he believed that man's highest good is the life of reason. So the pleasure he was after was the pleasure that comes from reason, human reason and thought and understanding. And so, again, you have a different, so you have all these different groups coming out of this idea that the ends or, or the consequences are what really matter. And so it gets really complicated. He said he believed that reason leads to happiness and pleasure is a byproduct of happiness. And um, so the reason, reason or wisdom leads to moderation in all things. So, so his, his standpoint, whereas you have Aris, Aristippus, who, well, the, the first guy before him. So Aristippus said, said, no, let's go after pleasure right now and, and let's do that by, by avoiding moderation. Just if you want it, there was a story about him. The king offered him three women and said, choose between one of them. And he took all three and he said, you know, why choose one? And, and that was kind of his mode. Well, then Aristotle said, no, wisdom leads to moderation in all things. And so it's often possible to determine our specific duties by calculating the mean between two extremes. For example, and this was his example, a buffoon makes a joke out of everything. A bore takes everything too seriously. But the wit is the golden mean between these two extremes. So don't be a buffoon, don't be a bore. How, how do you know how you should live? Well, be a, be a wit, right, right in the middle. And, um, but it's, it's challenging, right? How do, you, how do you determine the mean between two extremes? And, and the, the mean between two extremes is not always the right decision. And this is a classic example. For example, robbing many banks. Is that right or wrong? It's wrong. So robbing no banks is the other extreme. So maybe robbing one bank would be the mean between the two extremes. You, you can't go about deciding how you live ethically by just finding the mean between two extremes. And, and again, we're, this is, we're just looking at, I mean, this is just a, a cursory glance. We're 
scratching the surface. But sometimes the right decision is not the middle ground. It is an extreme position. And, and so, so now we move to utilitarianism. And that's kind of the, the most modern and influential version of teleological ethics. And that came about in the 17 and 1800s. And again, it's the formation of all these ideas and trying to come up with something that's really coherent and something that we can understand. The chief end of ethics is not only the pleasure of the individual, but also the pleasure, the greatest pleasure for the greatest number of people. And so you see, it's, it, it could, if it's all about me, then you're trampling people. Well, then what about their pleasure? So it's, it's just sifting and finding the, the right way to understand this. So the chief end of ethics is not only the pleasure of the individual, but the greatest pleasure for the greatest number of people. That's the principle of utility. So when you are about to make a decision, you need to weigh up the relative happiness and misery that results. That's teleological thinking. What are the results? Sometimes, okay, so you should not lie, you should not steal, you should not murder. But you may sometimes do that, but it's unusual. You usually don't. It's very, do you understand? Like you, these things, you should, you should not murder, steal, and lie. But sometimes, if it's going to lead to happiness of the, the greatest number of people, you may need to resort to that. So an example, tell the truth. But what if lying will save lives? And, and I think this example has come up before. Um, you're Corrie ten Boom, and you're hiding Jews. And the, the Germans come to the door and say, are any Jews staying here? What do you say? You say, no, you're teleological. Gladys is not an ontological thinker. <laughs> Maybe both. Okay. So, I mean, it's, um, I guess it's a, a case of uh, anticipation. <coughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. She did. Gladys has met Corey Timboom. And she was willing to lie for the sake of saving Jews. I, I would too, frankly. Um, and we, we had read the book as a family. And what were you saying just, just the other day about Corey Timboom's sister, was it? Bessie. Bessie, who could not tell a lie. Well, it was hard for her, and she had to work through that, but she was training so that she could lie. In the end, they were all, she was caught and put in a concentration camp. And, and we'll, talk, we'll, we'll talk more about that next week. But, um, but deontologicists, de I think that's how you say it, they would say, no, tell the truth no matter what. You tell the truth, because the Bible says tell the truth. And um, so there's, 
the, the problem, and, and, and they would say, you know, lying, stealing, murder is usually wrong, but it depends on the consequences. Now, what, what's the challenge here? What's, what's challenging about that? Depends on the, go ahead, what? Okay, maybe compromising. Yeah. And it's kind of weighing a lie versus do I want to be a part of the torture and murder of yeah. people? So as a meta, are we weighing things? Like, you know, which one goes So just for the record, I would do what she did. But it gets really complicated because at what point, who decides? That was Corey. I mean, when you have a philosophy that states this, then suddenly, yeah, I shouldn't steal a loaf of bread to save my family. But should I cheat on my taxes because it'll make our life a little bit easier? I mean, there's just, where do you draw the line? But, um, yeah. Well, if, I mean, unfortunately, I've been in a situation where I was faced with telling my race, even though I don't look like it. And I, if I lied, I would have saved my, possibly saved my life. But who am I going to have to answer to in the end? I couldn't deny my race. I couldn't deny who I am. So you yeah. told you told yeah, the truth, absolutely. and you were spared. I was still spared, but it makes life a lot a lot harder. At what point, who are we doing it for? Yeah. What are we doing it for? Amen. I mean, it's it just it gets really complicated. So here's an example from my from my life. I decided to sneak out at night. I was in the ninth grade, and I brought eggs with me, and I was going to egg cars. So what is determining my, my decision-making? Ethical, where am I on this spectrum? Okay, what, okay. well, I would argue that I'm not a teleologic. Yeah, I'm an existentialist, because I'm not thinking about the consequences at all. That's a, what consequences? And so I sneak out, I have eggs, and my neighbor, Billy Olin, and Mike Jesh were going to meet us there. I, I was in junior high. They were in high school. And so my friend, I don't even remember who it was, but he and I went, and we were throwing eggs at cars. Well, at 1 a.m. in the morning, who's driving their cars? Cops. We didn't hit any cops. And, and, and tough guys that you don't want to mess with. And so these guys who had graduated from high school were driving. And, but you have to wait a long time in between cars. So you're not waiting. You're throwing. And they came around. And so we dove into the bushes. We're hiding. Now, what's driving their thinking? They're chasing us. They're making a moral decision. We're going to stop the car. Yeah. So what would that be? Okay, truth. They're, they're going to get the truth. Maybe they're affected by the ontological reasoning. Okay, so they came, and my friends, Billy Olin and, and Mike Jesh, showed up. We're hiding in the bushes. These guys are literally walking down the bushes. It's pitch black, and they're almost to where I am. I'm crouched in the bushes, not making a move. And then they see Mike Jesh and Billy Olin walk up, and so they turn and go to the trail right before he was about to step on me. 
And Mike Jesh and Billy Olin, they said, what are you guys doing? And they're bigger than Mike Jesh and Billy Olin. And so they're, so what are, Mike Jesh and Billy Olin told them, we're, we're here to meet Dave Nelson. <laughs> what terrible friends, right? So Billy Sikowski, who was the guy who was driving the car and was out of high school, and maybe this is way too long, I'm sorry. He drove to my house at 1 in the morning because he happened to know where I live. I don't know how he did, but... And he knocked on the door, bam, bam, bam. My mom and dad woke up, came to my bedroom window, looked out and like, what is going on? And he said, is Dave Nelson here? Does Dave Nelson live here? Or he said, does John Nelson, he, he mixed up the name somehow. He said, does John Nelson live here? And my parents said, no, but they knew. <laughs> they knew my bed was empty. And they knew that this is a tough guy and he's gonna kill me. And they said, no. What was driving their, I mean, they were, they were telling the truth on the one hand, because I'm not John Nelson, I'm Dave Nelson. But they said, no, what was driving their thinking? Okay, how? Well, just because like, they know that the guy wants to kill you, and so they're worried about you. Were they? <laughs> so yeah, I think, I think they were like, you're not going to kill him, we're going to kill him. <laughs> he, he, doesn't, he doesn't live here. And, and, and it, didn't, it didn't go well for me. Yeah. So the, the classic question that is brought up with this line of thinking is what's called the trolley problem. How many of you have heard the trolley problem? There's four or five people on the train track, train's headed for them, but there's a really heavy set person on the, waiting at the station. If you push him in front of the train, you'll save five lives. Do you do it? So if you are a pure consequentialist, then five people need an, an organ transplant. One person's healthy, comes in for a checkup. That person is confiscated, grabbed, seized, killed, and you pass the organs on to the five people. Which are you, are, you're putting the, the corporate pleasure above the individual pleasure, right? Utilitarian. But we, we know that's wrong, right? We know you cannot do that. You can't kill the one to save the others. It's the same idea with the trolley. And so, so, and this is where it gets really confusing. It just doesn't, you can't take one and say this is the truth. Because ultimately, they, they then have act utilitarianism and rule utilitarianism. And rule says, well, there are certain things you just can't do regardless of the consequences. So even though we're consequentialists, we're going, to have, we're going to set up some rules. So as soon as you do that, you're really not utilitarian, truly. You're, you're adding the element of ontological reasoning. And so it doesn't, it doesn't work. Does that, does that make sense at all? Um, 
So it's challenging to judge the goodness or badness of an act. And, and this was Aristotle. To judge the goodness or badness of an act, you need only to calculate the accumulated pleasure and or pain the act produces. You need to measure the results or consequences. How easy is that? How easy it is it to determine between long-term, short-term pleasure, what the type of pleasure, et cetera. How do you make those decisions? You would, you'd almost have to be like God himself. We don't, we're not omniscient. And so Frame says it this way. This is, leads us to an insurmountable difficulty in measuring the pleasures and pain likely to result from an action. Listening to Brahms, eating cherry pie, running a marathon, falling in love, having your local baseball team win the World Series, and solving a philosophical problem. No method could quantify these pleasures so as to permit calculation. We can measure a feeling of cold or hot by wind chilled or calculations and such. Be even, but even that will vary from individual to individual. But how can we measure the pleasure of watching a sunset or looking at the Grand Canyon? Further, to measure the consequences of an action, we would have to trace its effects into the indefinite future and throughout the universe. One action, after all, can have enormous effects years later and miles away. Imagine Columbus trying to calculate the effects of his decision to sail west. You know, Columbus, do I decide to do this? Well, what will maximize pleasure or minimize? Oh, I'm not going to do it. You know, you know what? How, how would he make that calculation? To really do this, you would need divine omniscience. Secular existentialism and teleologism are, are, requires us to assume to be God. Like authority over our lives, your one, require, one takes a God-like authority over our individual lives, and then the other requires um, a godlike omniscience. Does that, does that make sense? To, to calculate the pleasures and the kind of pleasures. Basically, yes, there is a reality about consequential ethics, but it requires a god governing it. Um, so, oh, I mean, we could. So, so how about the Bible? What is the Bible? Think, just think of the Ten Commandments. On the one hand, that's ontological, right? Because it's a rule, it's a law that we all must follow. But think about the Ten Commandments. Tell me about the Fifth Commandment. Honor your father and mother. Okay, how does that commandment go? Honor your father and mother that it may be well with you and now may it serve all on the earth as the first commandment of the promise. Okay, so there's a promise. Honor your father and mother that it may go well with you, right? The Bible says don't commit adultery, right? But have you read Proverbs? What does Proverbs say about adultery? Why should we not create adultery? Proverbs, I just think Proverbs 5 through 7. If you commit adultery, you will die. It will destroy you. And so is it a rule? It is a rule. But why is it a rule? What's that? <laughs> two women are too much. 
consequentialist. Um, why is it a rule? Because God wants us to be blessed. And he knows that if we do things his way, according to the rule, we will experience blessing and not curse. How about, how about God's word? In Proverbs 3, it talks about giving. Why would you give? Well, because we should give. Yeah, but then there's, your vats will overflow and you'll be blessed. Pursue wisdom. Why? Because all that you desire cannot compare with wisdom from God. Read God's word. Study it. Psalm 1. Meditate on it. Why? You'll be successful in all that you do. Um, any, any thoughts? Any thoughts? Yes. When he was talking about Corey Timbrell, he, he said his the Belai, that that's when her parents, and they didn't say no, but they weren't afraid to. They said, why do you want to know? Hmm. And it kind of reversed that they, they eventually got caught. But they didn't come right out and say no. They weren't. They tried to twist it around. So I, I don't want to leave the impression, at least according to what Corey told us to learn the tree, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just wanted to clarify that. They didn't come right out and say no. They just tried to twist it around. It's, it's complicated, but I, I think I would say no to try to save lives like that. I, I just but, yeah. Just yeah. That's next week. Okay. Yeah. So I don't know yet. I'll be studying this week and <laughs> trying to figure it out. Yeah. Well, the there, there are some who would say, yeah, there's a rule because if you have an absolute rule, do not lie, then as you live that way, others will live that way. And, and you're, you're not going to have a chaotic society where everyone's deciding when's the right time to lie. And it will ultimately go well with you, and it'll go well with your society. Okay, now your position is that lying is sometimes a That's the teleological position. But you're not saying that's your way, you're not taking a position. No. Okay. No. And I, I'm, I am saying I'd be inclined toward picking and choosing, but there's a host of problems as soon as you do that. And so, so I, I think it's probably better to say, this is the truth, and I'm going to trust God. But, um, but it's complicated. Um, okay, so Rahab, she lied. It was an elaborate lie because the, they came and she's like, no, they're not here. The spies are not here. In fact, they went out the gate and they went that way. And if you hurry, you'll catch them. And so she really went into detail. And, and I would, the Bible doesn't tell us she was right or wrong. It's just descriptive. But they were saved. And she was the great-great-grandmother of Jesus himself. And so we're not told you should do this, but it is an example of someone who is considered faithful. And God blessed her. And we all make mistakes. Yeah. The commandment actually says, don't offer false witness against the person, which is lying against yeah. Did you hear that, Bill? What Gladys said? Gladys. It's complicated. 
Does anybody else want to answer what Gladys said in our last minutes? Yeah. Yeah. I think I think there's an element of divine wisdom in all of these, and and like Brett has said, they push against one another, and so as soon as you say it's all this way, you you miss something, and yeah, Anne. Yeah, and, and for in, in the case of those guys who came to my house and they were upset with me, who knows, if my parents would have said, yes, that's our son, and he's not in his bed, maybe those guys would have found me the next day and really helped me to learn not to do that anymore because I continued to do that. And I did. And, and so, you, in other words, you, my parents assumed they knew what the consequence would be. Can we ever assume we know what the consequence is going to be? We can't. We're not wise enough. We don't, we don't know what the result of any action will be. Ultimately, we don't. And we've got to end now. So th thank you guys for coming. And I'll tell you, I'm wrestling with this stuff. And I encourage you to read up on it. We're going to talk about the ontological argument next week. And, um, and so hopefully there'll be plenty of opportunity for input. Father, thank you so much. Lord, thank you that you are a good and wise God. Lord, you understand not only the, the right approach to living in every single circumstances, but you understand all possible outcomes. And Lord, you are ruling in a wise and loving way. So Lord, help us to really care about what we do and let, help us to think deeply about what we do and why we do it. And we pray for your guidance. Um, bless all these people. And Lord, we thank you for church. We thank you for the opportunity to gather now and sing and fellowship with the saints. Bless our time. In Jesus' name, amen.